Good morning, everybody. Uh, this is the second Sunday of Advent, and um, if you weren't here last week, you're probably thinking right now, wait a second, it's not even Thanksgiving yet. How can it be Advent? And, um, and we actually spent quite a bit of time answering that question last Sunday. So this is one of those weeks where I would strongly encourage you to go back and listen um, to our podcast, to our messages, they're all online. Go back and listen to last week's message, because we spent a lot of time talking about how actually historically... Um, Advent did start this early. Followers of Jesus um, began Advent, and it was a season of six or seven weeks. And historically, it didn't have a whole lot to do with Christmas. It wasn't the countdown uh, to Christmas that it is um, today. And, and that's not to say we don't love Christmas here. We do love Christmas, and we're going to celebrate it. And when we get to the end of December and it's time to really lean into um, all those Christmas themes, we'll do that. Um, but we're following a more ancient tradition this year. We're trying something a little different because Advent originally was about an idea, the idea that we live in a really dark world, a dark world that's often ruled by dark forces. And in the midst of that, we can put our hope and our trust in God, in the present, in this world, and we can also trust in him in the future that one day he'll actually come back and he'll deal with all of that darkness, and he'll set everything right, and he'll make all things new again. Now, i got to be honest. For me, I rarely think about those uh, dark forces in the world, right? That sounds kind of um, Star, Star Wars-like, you know? Uh, and I just, I mean, that's fun to watch the movies, but I don't usually think about that because things are pretty good in my life, and um, it just kind of feels ancient and silly to talk about dark forces still haunting the world. And yet every now and then, feel like I come face to face with that reality. I teach a class at the University of Denver called A Moral History of World War II. And we study the Holocaust. And you can't uh, study the Holocaust and not realize it, it, it wasn't really about one really bad leader, though he was really bad. And it wasn't about just a bunch of people's individual decisions, but that somehow, some way, there was something deep and really dark going on, that an entire society of people would be driven by such fear and such vengeance. A few years ago, I went to the slums of India, and that's a dark place, if you've ever been anywhere like that. And you leave there, and you think, this is... I can't humanly, I mean, we can try to humanly explain the poverty and the, all the things that are going on, but it doesn't do justice. Like, there's just, there's something dark that's oppressing people here. And then I come back home, and I forget about all of that, and my hardest problems are traffic, right? And it's, and it's easy to ignore all that. But we go to the Bible and we read these letters from Paul, and in a whole bunch of his letters and a whole bunch of his writings, he says, wake up. Wake up. There are forces of darkness in our world, and if you don't see them or you don't think they're there, it's like you're asleep. And, and bless your heart for thinking that everything's great in the world, but you've got to wake up and realize that there really is darkness in our world. And so in this Advent series, that's really what we're doing. We're just asking the question, how can we wake up and what are these powers and these 
forces of darkness in the world that Paul says, with God's help, we can stand against. With God's help, we can be strong in the face of. And sometimes there's some things we can do about these dark forces, and sometimes we just lament and cry out to God that we need you to come and invade our world and do something about this. So today, um, we're going to jump into that discussion, and I thought we would just dive right into the deep end. You guys okay with that? All right. Because we're going to read a passage of scripture that I'm guessing you have never heard a sermon on before in your life, um, because no pastor is crazy enough to preach a sermon on this passage of scripture, but we're going to give it a try. It's in the book of Revelation, and it's right in the middle of all of that stuff about dragons and darkness and judgment and all of the crazy stuff, and so let's just jump right in. Here's what it says, Revelation chapter 18. After this, I saw another angel coming down from heaven. And I'll unpack some of this in a second. And he had great authority, and the earth was illuminated by his splendor. And with a mighty voice he shouted, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She has become a dwelling for demons and a haunt for every impure spirit. A haunt for every unclean bird. A haunt for every unclean and detestable animal. For all the nations have drunk the maddening wine of her adulteries. The kings of the earth committed adultery with her, and the merchants of the earth grew rich from her excessive luxuries. So here's the scene. Uh, there's this angel, and, and the word in Greek for angel just means messenger. So maybe it's easier to think about it that way. It's this messenger sent from God, and apparently he's bright, and he's white, and he's powerful. Not, not white, like, we don't know what he's colorious. You know what I mean. Just when it, when it came out of my mouth, I realized that sounded weird, but he's shining. He's luminescent. Um, and he has this proclamation. He has this, he, he has this announcement to make, and the announcement is about Babylon and how Babylon is falling. It's being destroyed. It's imploding. Now, the language is super strong here. So, so let me just back up for a second and give you just a few pointers whenever it comes to reading stuff like this from the book of Revelation. Um, first, I want you to keep in mind this. Revelation is actually a letter. It's a letter written by the apostle John to a bunch of Christians that are living in the Roman Empire in about 95 A.D., so Jesus was crucified in 30 AD. So this is many years after that. John's an old man. He's probably the last living disciple at this point. And um, there had been some waves of persecution towards Christians throughout the first century. But we know at the very end of the first century, the emperor Domitian had, um, had tried to reinvigorate the worship of the Roman gods and the Roman religion. And in the process, he had done everything he could to begin to stamp out Christianity. And Christianity was just a really small movement at this time. And so there was a question at the end of the first century here of whether this movement would even make it. Is the church even going to make it? And so that's the context that this is written in. This letter is sent to some Christians living in that world. Now, second, the letter contains a vision. 
And uh, if you're a follower of Jesus at that time, life would have been really dark. All the forces around you would have felt really dark. And uh, so God is giving John this vision, and it's this way. And the vision is just kind of like a dream. It's this dream that John has, and it's this way of God pulling back the curtain to say, I know things are really hard in your life right now. I know it seems like things are dark and hard and you're being persecuted for your faith and you can't worship the God you want to and you're being made to worship gods you don't want to. And, and I know it, you're wondering, does God even care? Does he exist? Does he hear your prayers? All of those things. But here, I want to pull back the curtain and the vision pulls back the curtain to say, yes, there is a war, a cosmic war that is raging, but you need to know that the good guys are, are ultimately going to win. And so hang in there. And persevere. Now the vision, and this is the third point, the vision uses all kinds of imagery and powerful symbols to describe this cosmic war that's happening and who the good guys are and who the bad guys are. And it seems strange to us when we first read those words, and yet we use symbols and imagery the same way all the time. Well, let me just give you a couple of examples. Let me put one symbol on the screen. Now, don't say it out loud, but when you see this symbol, what do you think of? Just what are the, no, no do not say it out loud. <laughs> Just what do you think of? What are the things that you think of? Now, let me show you another symbol very similar. <laughs> what are the things that you think of when you see this symbol? Pure evil, right? <laughs> right? But isn't it funny because these symbols are really similar. They have the same colors, the stars. They stand for the same thing. They kind of point to similar historical circumstances. And yet all of us, or at least most of us, probably have good feelings and ideals at least, maybe not realized ideals, but ideals associated with the first symbol. And the second symbol is the evil empire, Right? <laughs> And we, and we love the first one and we hate the second one. And yet, if you live 2,000 years from now and you uncovered these symbols and you didn't know any better, you would think that they're communicating the exact same thing. But they're not. <laughs> well, they're not. <laughs> one is about the good guys, Right? So when we come to Revelation, we have to do a little work to understand some of the symbols and imageries, to understand what's going on. Now, one symbol for early Christians was Babylon the Great. Now, this is a drawing from medieval times, but we know that even in the first century, Babylon was a symbol for Rome. Babylon was just a symbol for Rome. Now, Babylon had been its own ancient empire six or seven hundred years before this. We even read about that a few weeks ago, the Babylonian Empire. And the Babylonian Empire was known for its powerful military, its powerful economy, the great wealth that it had. But eventually it was destroyed, and by the first century, the Roman Empire had surpassed it in every way. And the Roman Empire was now known as the greatest empire in the history of the world. And so anytime Christians used this term Babylon or Babylon the Great, it was like a symbol. It was, it was coded language. It was a cipher for the idea of Rome. So if we go back to Revelation 18, 
This vision is basically saying to persecuted Christians at the time, this dark empire of Rome that is ruling over you right now and that you think is about to destroy you, it will actually be destroyed. And the reason it will be destroyed is because it's being ruled over by something even darker and even more sinister. Do you know what dark force is going to lead to Rome's downfall? It's those last three words. Her excessive luxuries. It's actually her wealth. It's her opulence. It's her extravagance. It's all the stuff that Romans or buying, all the stuff that Rome stands for, all the stuff that makes Romans proud of who they are, that they're the greatest empire in the world, that they could be able to own and have all of this stuff. That will actually be the source of her downfall. Now, the vision and the message continues. It says this next. Then I heard another voice from heaven say, and this might be the voice of God, we don't know, Come out of her, my people, so that you will not share in her sins, so that you will not receive any of her plagues, for her sins are piled up to heaven, and God has remembered her crimes. So this is super strong language, right? These excessive luxuries, this wealth of Rome, it's now being called sins piled up to heaven and crimes, before God. And the reason the language is so strong here is because two things are happening in the Roman Empire at this time. Two things that are like cancer on the human soul and cancer on human society. It's the worship of wealth and economic inequality and oppression. The first is destructive. It's like a cancer. Because whenever people worship wealth, they're finding their identity and their pleasure and their joy and their purpose in something that was never meant to fulfill that need. And then the second always follows from the first. Whenever some people worship wealth, it always leads to economic inequality and oppression. And we don't have to read this in the book of Revelation, <laughs> We don't need the Bible to tell us this or the ancient Hebrew prophets to tell us this. We can just look at history to learn this. In fact, let me read you a few quotes from some historians. This first is from a, a secular historian. His name is Mike Duncan. He's written um, bestsellers. He has a podcast and all that. He wrote a book called The Storm Before the Storm, The Beginning of the End of the Roman Republic. It says this, after Rome conquers Carthage, and after they decide to annex Greece, and after they conquer Spain and acquire all the silver mines, you have wealth on an unprecedented scale coming into Rome. The flood of wealth was making the richest of the rich Romans wealthier than would have been imaginable even a couple of generations earlier. All of this is being concentrated in the hands of the senatorial elite. They're the councils and the generals, so they think it's natural that it all accumulates in their hands. At the same time, these wars of conquest were making the poor quite a bit poor. The rich started buying up big plots of land, and you have this process of dispossession where the poor Romans are being bought out and are no longer small citizen owners. 
They're going to be tenant farmers or tenant owners or sharecroppers. And it has a really corrosive effect on the traditional ways of economic life and political life. As a result, you see this skyrocketing economic inequality. And he doesn't even talk about the slavery here that this leads to and how that grew during the Roman Empire. Now, what's interesting is that wealthy Romans didn't actually see themselves this way. They didn't think that their lifestyles or that their luxury or their desires had anything to do with inequality or the oppression of the poor. And they really didn't even think they were that wealthy. There was one Roman official in the late first century. His name is Pliny the Younger. And um, he was a magistrate. Uh, He was actually a magistrate in one of the very areas that John is writing to Christians. It's in modern day Turkey. And um, in fact, we even have a letter from Pliny the Younger written to the Roman Empire to say that my officials are rounding up Christians and throwing them in prison. And can you help me figure out how to best prosecute them and punish them for practicing their faith? Well, here's what we know about Pliny the Younger. Here's what some historians have understood about him. This is from Mary Beard. She's one of the probably the best-known Roman historians. Pliny the Younger described his own country villa a few miles outside of Rome in one of his letters. It was, he explained, fit for purpose and not too expensive to maintain. In other words, it was, it was a practical home. Despite that modest description, it was actually a vast pile with dining rooms for use in different seasons, a private bathing suite and swimming pool, courtyards and shady porticos, central heating, ample running water, a gymnasium, sunny lounges with picture windows overlooking the sea, and garden hideaways where Pliny, who was not a man for raucous fun, could escape the noise of the parties on those rare days when the slaves took a holiday. We even have a picture of Pliny the Younger. (laughs) Right? (laughs) so back to the verses God is saying through this vision to John these Romans who are worshipping their wealth and they're spending lavishly to acquire all of this stuff while other people are getting poorer and poorer and having to become slaves to support their lifestyles. The warning to followers of Jesus is don't be a part of that. Don't share in that. Don't be like that. And all the Christians at this time weren't just poor. We have records of there actually being some wealthy people who were joining this movement of Christianity. And John and God is saying through this vision, hey, don't be like that. Learn a lesson from them. Don't be seduced by this dark power that is seducing Rome right now. Now, the vision goes on, and it's, it's super fascinating. I wish we had time uh, to read all of it, because right after this, there's three groups. And, and remember, it's a vision, so it's, you can picture Rome is like on fire, and it's being destroyed. And there's three groups of people standing off to the side, and they're watching it being destroyed in this vision, and they pronounce woes or laments over the destruction of Babylon or the destruction of Rome. And the first group is the kings of the earth, 
other kings around the earth who also shared in the luxury of Rome. The second group is the, the um, business people, and the third group um, are the, the uh, ship owners who are bringing all the cargo and all the stuff that people are buying into Rome. So let me skip that verse for a second. Let's go to the next one and read um, about the merchants. Here's what the merchants say when they uh, are lamenting over what's happening. The merchants of the earth will weep and mourn over her because no one buys their cargoes anymore. Cargoes of gold, silver, precious stones and pearls, fine linen, purple, silk, and scarlet cloth, every sort of citron wood, Articles of every kind made of ivory, costly wood, bronze, iron, and marble. Cargoes of cinnamon and spice, of incense, myrrh, and frankincense, of wine and olive oil, of fine flour and wheat, cattle and sheep, horses and carriages, and human beings sold as slaves. Woe, woe to you, great city, dressed in fine linen, purple and scarlet, and glittering with gold, precious stones and pearls, in one hour. Such great wealth has been brought to ruin. In other words, all of this stuff that you've acquired is not going to help you. You can put it all on, you can be proud of it, but it will actually be the source of your ruin. Now, let me pause there for a second. <clears throat> Could this whole vision? And this whole description also be a description of us? Could it also be a description of our culture? Of our lives? Of our excessive luxuries? I mean, how many of us have excessive luxuries? I know I do. That cargo list that we just read of all the things coming in to Rome to support the lifestyles of wealthy Romans. Here's the New American translation of that passage. Uh, the merchants of the earth will weep and mourn over her because no one buys their cargo anymore. Cargoes of gold, silver, and all kinds of jewelry, wool, wool flannel, and breathable moisture-wicking fabrics. <laughs> the most fashionable Wood furniture, traditional, transitional, contemporary, mid-century, and shabby chic. <laughs> Ceramic floor tiles, granite countertops, the finest wines, whiskeys, craft beers, and coffee beans. All-wheel drive vehicles with heated seats. And the newest electronic devices made by modern-day slaves in Asian sweatshops. Now, I, I own many of these things. A little bit of flannel, right? But I rarely stop to think how my desire to have nice things that are made inexpensively contributes to economic inequality and oppression. And I often don't think that because I'm middle class, right? And I try to be practical in all of my purchases, and yet I step back and I wonder, am I really that different than Plenty the Younger? <laughs> Who, compared to everyone else in his world, he was rich beyond rich at the expense of so many others. Now, <clears throat> my intent in reading this passage is not to make all of us feel really guilty today. 
Um, I know that's going to be a little bit of a result, right? Um, You don't start a sermon by showing a picture of the Holocaust and then reading a passage from Revelation without bringing about a little bit of guilt. But that's not my intent. Here's why I think this vision of Babylon is so important, because this vision and so many other stories in the Bible like it reveal one of the most hidden and seductive and sinister and darkest forces at work in our world and in our own lives that we're often unaware of. And it's the allure of stuff. And if you don't think this is a dark force in our world, let me just ask a few questions. How many of us have debt? You don't have to raise your hand. Um, if the statistics are true, 55% of us have credit card or consumer debt right now, an average of $8,000. And how much of that debt is controlling and enslaving you? Is keeping you from actually living the way you would like to live. How many of us buy things we don't really need, right? How many of us, when we're anxious or we're stressed out or we're just bored, we go buy things? And we think that that's how we can, we don't even think about it really. It's just a coping mechanism. It's a way of coping with our stress or our anxiety or our boredom or a way of trying to escape those things. And how often does it give us a little jolt really quickly and then it goes away until we go buy something else? And it's like we're trapped in a cycle and we don't even know it. I mean, this is the cycle of cocaine or heroin use, right? It gives you a little jolt and then it often leads you even lower than you were before until you come back to it. That's a dark force. Here's another question. How many of us will get to the end of our lives? And some of us realize this when we're 50 or 60 or 70 and we look back on all the time and energy we spent trying to make as much money as possible and buying and acquiring as much stuff as possible. And how many of us will get to a point where we look back and we say, my greatest joys and my greatest purpose and my greatest times and seasons in life had nothing to do with the money I was making or the stuff I was buying. So why in the world did I spend so much time trying to make so much and buy so many things. It's a dark, dark force. Can we begin to see how it's ruling over so much of our hearts and lives? As jarring and jolting as the passage in Revelation is, I want to tell you one more story real quick this morning from the Bible, and I'll I'll just summarize it because most of us already know it. The story of a man who came to Jesus one day, and uh, he had a lot of stuff, and he wanted to follow Jesus. That's almost all of us in the room, right? We have a lot of stuff, and we have a desire to follow Jesus. And so he came up to Jesus, and he asked Jesus a simple question. Jesus, how can I experience the life that you have for me? And Jesus said, it's super simple. Just get rid of all your stuff, and then follow me. That's it. And, And I don't think that's the answer that Jesus would give to everybody, I think anybody that walked up to Jesus and said, I want to experience the life you have for me, I think Jesus would just look into our individual hearts and he would discern what other gods we're worshiping right now. And he would say, you just need to leave those gods and start following me. And so for this man, 
it was all of his stuff. And so he just said, hey, you just need to let go of all that, and then you'll be able to follow me. And the book of Mark tells us that the man became really disappointed when Jesus said this. And he walked away. And he didn't realize it, but his stuff was ruling over him. So much so that when it came to this choice, he stuck with the stuff. That was more important than anything that Jesus had to offer. He was kept from actually following and knowing Jesus in his life because of this other force ruling over him. And I wonder how many of us are not that different from that man. So what do we do? <laughs> what do we do about this? Well, I, I think the worship of stuff and luxury and possessions and buying stuff, I think out of all the forces we're going to look at in the coming weeks, I think it's one of those that we can actually do something about right now. It's, it's something that with God's power, we can stand against it and, and, and ensure that it doesn't actually rule over our lives. So let me close with three quick suggestions. Number one, admit that you have a problem. Stole this from AA, right? Because <laughs> um, if you think it's not an issue for you, right? It's not an issue for you. If you have zero debt and you don't buy too many things you don't actually need, and the things that you do buy, you buy in such a way that it doesn't contribute to unfair practices and putting people in oppression around the world. I'm guessing maybe one or two of us in the room fit that category. And if you do, like, you need to come up here and show us the way and lead us because the rest of us, myself included, need to admit this is a problem. It's a challenge. And we're so often allured by stuff. And so we need to start by just admitting this is a dark force that we don't often see, and it often seduces us into making decisions that are unhealthy, not just for us, but for everybody. So that's number one. Number two is be radical about getting out of debt. Now, if you're here today and you've made mistakes and you do have a lot of debt, maybe you have a little bit of debt, I don't know where you are, um, this isn't about those mistakes. There's nothing you can do about that, and you don't need to feel guilty about that anymore. I think God wants you to be free from that. And so you just need to be radical about becoming free from that and be radical about getting out of debt. And so we want to make that as easy as possible. So there's a couple of sheets on the table out there in the um, foyer as you walk out. And at the top of them, they just say, I would like some help figuring out how to get out of debt. And there's a whole bunch of spaces there for you to just put your name and a phone number or an email. And we'll send you some resources this week that'll help you get started at that. And there should be a long line to put your name on that sheet. Because again, if the statistics are right, there's 50 or 60 or 70 or 80 of us right now that are carrying significant debt that we don't want to carry. And so it's so easy. Just put your name on a sheet and say, this week, I want to just 
start. I've tried in the past and it hasn't worked or I haven't known how or it, whatever. I just want to start working at that. So start by admitting it's a problem. If you have debt, be radical at getting out of it. And then here's the third thing. Buy 50% less this holiday season. Buy 50% less. Why 50? Um, I don't know. I just picked it. I, there's probably some of us that are really frugal already, and we've made some decisions in the past, and, and, and we enter this season aware. Most of us don't. Most of us buy two, three, four times more stuff than we need to buy. And this isn't about Christmas. Christmas is awesome. Buying gifts for people is awesome. Being generous towards others is awesome. But what if this year we said, instead of like spending this much, let's spend this much. Let's just, let's just do an experiment. And let's give some gifts to the people that we love. And let's be thoughtful about what gifts we give to them. But instead of spending this much, let's spend this much this year. And then let's look back in January and ask the question, was Christmas horrible this year? Because we only spent this much instead of this much? Or was it still just as amazing? Was it maybe even better? Because we didn't go into debt like we do at the end of every year? Was it maybe better because I could take some of the things I usually spend and I could put it towards actually paying down some of the debt I already have? Was it better because I could actually save in some ways I've never been able to do? Or I could be generous in some ways towards other people. I've, never, I've always wanted to be generous, but I've never known how, or I've never had the ability to do that. What if you tried that this year? Admit that it's a problem. If you've got debt, work really hard. Do whatever you have to do to get out of it. And we want to help you with that. And then enter this season, this time of the year, where we tend to overindulge more than any other time, really intentionally, and say, I'm going to try something different. Let me pray for us. God, it's hard to admit, um, I think for all of us, something like this has a hold on our lives. Um, and we know that money's not evil and stuff isn't evil. It's just loving it too much that, that can destroy our lives. <laughs> and more importantly, that can just lead us away from you. And we don't want to worship our stuff and we don't want to worship uh, success or wealth or possessions or whatever it is. God, we we want to follow you, and we know that the life and the peace and the joy that you have to offer is so much greater than anything we can find from our stuff. So I pray that this year you would give us a new perspective, and you would give us courage as we call out to you and look to you to strengthen us in the midst of this challenge. I pray this in your name. Amen.